Did you know that the average human spends 92,000 hours at work during their lifetime? That's more than we spend eating, cleaning, driving, watching TV, or even surfing the internet. In fact, work is what we do most. It comes second only to sleeping. Welcome to 92,000 Hours, the podcast that believes in the integration of life and work. I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb. Before we begin, I wanted to tell you a quick story about why this podcast is so personal to me. I began practicing law at age 26 and learned many valuable lessons, including that I was deeply unhappy at work. Although I was on a path that looked like traditional success, I realized that I needed to quit my job in order to align myself with my passion and purpose. Now I am dedicated to making sure all of our 92,000 hours at work are spent well instead of simply spent. How do we construct a working world that values and accommodates our humanity? How do we construct a life that is not separate from, but fueled by, the purpose we find in our work? In this podcast, we will explore those questions and more. In each episode, I will speak to someone that demonstrates meaning, passion, and purpose in their work. Join me in discovering what happens when we bring our whole selves to our work, schools, and communities. Today, I am joined by Dr. Gary Danes. Gary is the Provost and Vice President of Academic Affairs at Barton College. He holds a PhD in American history with a focus on the history of efforts to build and strengthen community. Today, we are speaking about trust, both in ourselves and in others. So let's jump in. I've told you about the question that I always ask at the beginning, and so I'm really interested in your answer. Uh, so it's the who are you as a human being type of question. You can't count work, school, volunteerism, sports, church-related activity, all of the things that you might tick off on a resume. You have to take that resume stuff out. Um, what is your greatest accomplishment as a human being? I think my accomplishment is to care about and try to live in a way that is concerned with a long time horizon, right? That thinks about the span of time. And you would think as a historian that this would have been a thing, like I would say, <laughs> I love history, I love the long span of time, so of course this will be an accomplishment of mine. Um, but I stumbled into history, I didn't choose history on purpose, I don't think. Um, or maybe I, you did. Or maybe I did. Yeah. I didn't know. Uh, I used to be a serious uh, runner, and I ran a couple of ultra marathons. And you know, the notion that you would run for five or six hours without stopping for many, many miles—that um, taught me some things about the value of endurance. Mm-hmm. Intellectually, I've been increasingly intrigued by people who do take the, the long term. Um, there was this English uh, philosopher and politician, Edmund Burke, who made the argument that you know, every decision that you make has to be a decision that's informed by the generation that preceded you, your current generation, and the generation that follows you. Hmm. And I used to think that was kind of sentimental, but I think that there's now an actual sort of uh, 
beauty and discipline and responsibility in that, especially in a world of climate change and disintegrating institutions and and political dysfunction and the like. The notion that you would somehow make a set of decisions that respects uh, your grandparents and your grandchildren, that seems to be something that we ought to be worrying about a lot. Um, and then... Gosh, but it's really not there. No, it's, it's, um, it's not there. Valuable things are things that take a long time to arrive at and that last a long time after you're gone. Hmm. So that's beautiful. And I, uh, I wish more of us would think that way. And I feel like everything that we're, we talk about now is based on like limited time horizons rather than long term. Um, although there are places, like you mentioned, that, that actually do that. I think it leads into our subject matter about trust. And I think that trust plays into that long-term horizon thinking. And so it makes a lot of sense that that's what we would talk about today in all sorts of contexts, because I think it has to, a lot to do with your interest in, like within your professional life, your personal life, your community life, um, and maybe even in a faith life. Like I, it's interesting because I was reading something about how trust and faith sometimes are interchangeable and I don't know if they are or not. So I want to mm-hmm. talk about that a little bit too. Um, so um, as we, tell me what you think trust means or, you know, what I mean? or how no, do you see it? No, that's a super interesting question because I think trust means two contradictory things at the same time, or that is we use the word trust to actually refer to two things that are opposites of each other. So in an institutional setting, when a person says that they trust another person, it usually means that person will do what I want them to do Mm. or what I expect them to do so they know the rules so I can trust them, right? So this is often what happens in a hierarchy where uh, a, a boss says to somebody who works for them, I trust you. Really what they're saying is, I know that you're gonna do, you'll stand in for me, you'll do what I was gonna do, you'll follow the rules, you'll behave, so I can trust you. I don't need to like pay attention because you're gonna do what you're supposed to do. So that's, that's one form of, it's one usage of the word trust, and it's probably the more common usage of the word trust. But you can see what in there is really also distrust. Yeah. In fact, we build systems around that kind of trust to make sure that the person stays in the lines. So in a work setting, you know, you, you trust your, if you're running a restaurant, you trust your night manager to like, obey the rules, but there's also this whole system of surveillance to make sure that they're obeying the rules. Um, and then you get evaluated on your ability to obey the rules and stuff. So, so there's a form of trust that's really about, I think, predictability and control. Yeah. And then there's another form of trust, which is um, I trust that things will work out the way that they're supposed to work out, or I trust you so completely as a person that I believe that the decisions that you make, you'll make with integrity and with the best interests of our organization in mind. And that's a trust that's based in letting go of control in just believing, imagining, hoping that there's some kind of a a logic or a direction to the way the good relationships point or that the universe points to use kind of faith language 
that means that in the big picture, things are going to work out okay if you let go, if you trust that person to do their thing, to use their best gifts to make decisions that you wouldn't necessarily make. That's different from that other kind That's of trust, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So, but we use the word trust to mean both of those things simultaneously, or, or we, we can use it in a confusing sort of way. Um, uh, and it changes everything about the environment that you're in, depending on which level of trust we're talking absolutely. about, which definition. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. It absolutely does. <laughs> and I bet what's also interesting is there will, like, I would want to work in the environment that you talked about the latter environment you talked about. But I know that there are people who also want to work in the former environment and that that's okay too. Absolutely, yeah. I and mean, I think for the latter environment to work, what you have to have is agreement on a fundamental set of beliefs. Mm -hmm. And then with you know within those beliefs, um, people can be free to, to do their own thing. Is there a difference in terms of what trust might mean in that type of a context based on the different areas in which you've worked. Like you've worked in academia, you've worked uh, as like as a faculty member, a dean, a strategic planner, a consultant, uh, like there are different roles that you've worked in, um, even in the same industry, but has, how does trust show up differently in those types of roles? So in a traditional kind of American institution of higher education, there is the notion of faculty governance, right? That faculty own the curriculum and that they have some responsibility for determining what is taught and how it's taught and what the outcomes are. So when you think about that idea, it's a really beautiful and uncommon kind of thing in American institutions, in institutions in general. Right? I mean, you think if you were, if you worked for like Nike and <laughs> Nike said, well, uh, you know, we're going to, the decisions that we make about what kind of sneakers we sell are going to be based on like the folks that work at the sneaker factory. And so we'll set up this really complicated system for them to make a set of decisions about sneaker design, but then ultimately we'll put billions of dollars behind that. Well, it's, you know, it just, it just wouldn't make sense. But um, in higher education, there are these places these sort of vestiges of trust and one of them is in faculty governance now as faculty members we tend to do a horrible job at that uh, <laughs> either because we we take very kind of low stakes decisions so our faculty governance is about uh, you know what the course name is or the course number or do you take this course before or after that other course uh, but also because we find ourselves um, fighting all the time about those components of the curriculum or the classroom. And I don't, I'm not sure exactly what drives that, except that in higher ed, I think a lot of a person's sense of self is tied up in what they teach. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, to adjust a course is to adjust a person. A person. Um, and faculty governance doesn't, doesn't um, pay attention to that. Or allow for that humanity yeah. to be in it. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely the case. Very small institutions have been the, the slowest to adopt data. That's not because they're backwards or they lack technological ability or they're incurious. I think it is that in the lived day-to-day -day experience of very small institutions, 
you know stuff already hmm. that you could figure out also by using data, but it wouldn't be nearly as rich. Um, you know those things because your relationships are deep and entangled. So you're not talking about a generic student or a student with sort of generic demographic characteristics. You're talking about that particular student. Right. So you're not talking right. about faculty in general. You are talking about my institution, the 75 faculty who I all I know every single one of them, and they all know me, and I've hired 45% of them. Like we're actual human beings in relationship with each other. We're not the faculty and the administration often. So I say that just to say that probably this latter kind of trust that we were talking about, the trust to be free to make wise decisions within a vision or a commonly held vision or a mission, um, it only happens at certain scales, I think. That's and really pro- interesting. And I don't know at what point you get to a scale where you can't have that kind of trust or that sort of trust doesn't work, but it's probably not very big. Tell me about that, like about trust within working relationships. I think it's really important. I think that we don't talk about it very, I mean, I can't imagine you sit down and have like honest conversations about trust with the people either who work, who report to you or to whom you report. And I like, I'm really interested in that. How do we reach a space of a feeling like we are trusted or we trust other people or we are in a trustworthy environment? Some of it has to do with self-knowledge or at least self-understanding. That is, you can trust other people better when your own sense of self is secure enough or based in non-work related things Hmm. deeply enough so that it's okay for somebody to sit down across the table from you and say, no, actually you're wrong, um, or I don't believe that, or to work through really long and difficult conversations about, about hard and complicated things. Um, I've, I've come to believe more and more that you know the ability to trust, like I said, is rooted in a sense of self and that for me at least that sense of self is grounded in a set of of um, of faith commitments, and they're like increasingly old faith commitments for me. So I, th- I mean, I think you knew I I grew up Mormon. My family, my wife's family, have been Mormon since there were Mormons. They walked across <laughs> the plains. Um, we found ourselves very much um, on the margins of the Mormon Church, and when we moved to North Carolina. Um, through happenstance and good luck, we ended up in an Episcopal congregation. And so for me, Episcopal worship, where you know every Sunday you sort of go through the same liturgy and you often repeat the same prayers and the same words over and over again, it gave me a kind of, of grounding, a kind of uh, a hope depth, or at least like ancientness, right. oldness to um, some language that gave me, over time, a clearer sense of self, or a, not greater self-confidence, but greater comfort in, like... The this is of, okay yeah, to be this. Yeah, yeah. And that, in turn, makes it, I think, simpler to trust in other people. I love that you talked about that, because 
I think that we often, and I talk about this in the podcast about bringing our whole selves to wherever we are, and yet we often are not our whole selves. Like we are a piece or what we think we're supposed to be. There's some kind of a facade, but when we when we see each other, really, it. I, I think that you're saying like that trust happens more. It does, but our whole our systems are set up to make sure that we don't bring our whole selves. So think about like the whole range of um, of human resources policies and guidelines. They are many of them are meant to not bring your whole self to the table. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, think about um, job interview questions that are forbidden. Well, I understand why they're forbidden. They're forbidden in part because they've been used to discriminate against people in the past, you know, to ask about marital status, for instance. Right. Uh, people have been discriminated against. Hundreds, thousands of people have been discriminated against because that question was allowed. So now it's not allowed. And the unintended consequence of that is that an important part of many people's adult lives doesn't come to the table when they're making decisions about their work and their employment. Faculty members are among the last people, the last sort of category of people who are allowed within boundaries to be weird. <laughs> yes, like it's sometimes a badge of honor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, if you think about one of the things that differentiates a higher education administrator from a faculty member is administrators tend to be non-weird. And, and not allowed to be. Not allowed to be, and often, for that reason, not very interesting. Right. Um, because we're all, we're weird, Pe- people are weird, we're quirky, <laughs> we like strange things and interesting music and weird food and, you know, like we knit or garden or, or whatever. Or play role-playing games yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> one, of, one of the cool things about living in a little southern town is your social circle is relatively small. So over time, you come to discover things about people that you normally wouldn't discover, but it just comes up because there's only one bar. So if you want a beer, you go to the, the same place all the, all the time. And it's astonishing how interesting people are hmm. when you get to know them. Hmm. It's astonishing how interesting people are. If this conversation has caught your attention and you want to join in on conversations like this, check out our website at connectioncollaborative.com. Welcome back. You're listening to 92,000 Hours, and today we are chatting with Gary Danes. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that's like. I know that you're engaged and have been in community building, like as a as a vocation in some ways. Um, talk to me a little bit about that, about community building, what it means to you, and what, what it means. I don't know if there's a way to weave in trust, but it seems like the trust goes along with building community. Yeah. For a long time, I was working out of an assumption that universities, colleges and universities needed to be involved in the community because college and university students um, 
didn't really have a sense of community. And so when they came to college, they needed to learn the skills of democracy and be exposed to social issues and problems and challenges and stuff like that. And that was all the rhetoric um, of service learning at the time when I was getting involved in the, the 1990s. So turns out, though, that in the present, college students actually have rich senses of community. And the students who come to my institute, this institution where I'm the provost, um, most of them are deeply entangled in their families and their neighborhoods and their communities for good and for ill. Mm. Some of them don't want to live on campus because they have obligations to their families. Lots of them want to return to these little towns in eastern North Carolina that you know, people generally haven't heard of and wouldn't seem to be desirable places. So, but they have this rich kind of sense of community that we need to be more attentive to and more respectful to. I mean, institutions of higher ed still have this notion that like, the way to, for a young person to grow up is you extract them from all of their relationships and you put them in a residence hall and then you say, sleep here and we'll entertain you and you go to class, and that somehow that makes you into an adult. Hmm. I, I just think that needs to be examined. There's a whole set of assumptions there. They may be true, but they certainly... they certainly We haven't examined them. No, no. They're based in a set that's of assumptions. So, that's uh, radical for us. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're based in, an, in assumptions about who goes to college that date from the 1970s and 80s. Hmm when most of the people who went to college were from upper middle class families, they were often suburban, they didn't always have a lot of experience with diversity. So it wasn't that those were just like stupid benighted ideas that some administrator with too much time on their hands had. They were real, but they didn't, they didn't adjust, those assumptions didn't adjust with the world in, in which we live. So, um, so certainly that's kind of one piece, how, one way how I got to be interested in, in community. I have learned that probably in every single community, when you get past the kind of superficial, um, there are deep relationships and they exist quietly and they often exist outside of the view of formal institutions and they give meaning to people's lives in the way that a job, a title, wealth, even though all of those things are good, those things don't give the sort of meaning that real human relationships in bounded by place do give. So when we talk about that, I mean, that's really important, but I can also hear in the back of my head um, listeners saying, that sounds great. I have no idea how I'm going to find community. And in fact, right now, my place is located on a screen, right? Like there's so much, and I, I, I'm really interested in it because through my work with uh, young adults, I've learned that and I say it out loud, that we have so much ability to be connected and yet we feel so separate um, and that we're really yearning for what I think you're talking about in terms of community. We're yearning to be heard, to be seen, and to really listen. But we don't have the opportunity to do that. We search it out in ways that don't, that actually lead us to trust each other less, probably. Or um, I, I'm just interested in a, how do we develop or exercise this um, yearning in the environment that most of us find ourselves in? In my own experience, the richest sorts of online community, if you will, are of two types. 
One is where technology allows already existing relationships <clears throat> that are separated by distance to be together. Right. And that happens all the time. And it actually happens really richly across generations. I mean, my mother is not a technologically adept sort of person, but she's way better at staying in touch with my kids than I am because she... She sends the emojis. Yeah, yeah, she does. (laughs) She follows them as much as they sometimes don't like it on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's an ability for already existing relationships to be strengthened across distance um, through technology. Mm -hmm. The other thing that technology lets you do, which I think is also really healthy, is find um, similarly quirky people to you. So... I mean, if you look at the people that I follow on Twitter, there are some people that you would expect, right? Other higher ed folks and other people in Wilson. There's also a whole bunch of people who study stained glass in old English churches. Because I really like old English churches. I mean, becoming Episcopalian is part of Anglicanism. And I have this thing for old church buildings. I feel holiness in in those places. So, But I, I don't live anywhere near... Old English churches. Yeah. But if I got on my Twitter feed, I'd see, you know. All these pictures. All these pictures and explanations and remarkable things that I could never experience again. So that's that's meaningful to me. It's not a thick relationship. I mean, none of those people know who I am. None of them have, like, followed me back because they're not interested in, like, English church people aren't interested in vice presidents of small colleges (laughs) in rural eastern North Carolina. But nonetheless, there's that kind of... Uh, ability to have um, tightly defined community with like sort of uh, bonding social capital inward facing connection that's actually easier on the internet and that's good right it's good to have things that you are interested in people who share those interests a place in which to discuss and ask questions about those about those kinds of things. It That's makes good us and feel healthy. less separate. Yes, the world is better because that exists. We shouldn't assume, though, that um, a that that's an end in and of itself. I mean, I guess I'm old-fashioned, but I believe that uh, there's a power to physical proximity. Um, there's a a relational power to physical proximity that that matters. Hmm. So even people, again, back to my monk thing, even people who have chosen in some ways to separate themselves physically from much of the rest of society do it in community. You have a a monastery. You're going way back, you know, the desert fathers, the first hermits, fathers and mothers who went into the desert in Egypt in the 3rd and 4th century. They didn't just like go by themselves. There were communities of hermits, as as odd as that (laughs) sounds. So there's something about physical presence and interaction um, that matters. And I think it's about the ability to express emotion and nuance and sympathy and to get past um, disagreements that are spoken or that otherwise might, might, um, might tangle you up. It is ascribed to millennials and to Gen Z that they favor experience over acquisition, right? So, you know, rather like get an Airbnb instead of getting... in Indonesia instead of have a BMW or, or, or something like that. 
Well, there's a, a deep and rich um, part of human life in that, which is we learn powerfully and lastingly through experience. So what the, this cuts both ways. If you only have every experience once and your experience is bad, then you're going to mistrust that thing. So you, first time you go to McDonald's, you don't like the Big Mac, you're going to hate McDonald's forever. But if people return again and again to certain experiences, they become practices, they become rituals or habits, then there's a really deep sort of knowledge that grows out of that. Um, and I believe that that kind of, of practice um, builds trust. Hmm. It gives people the willingness to overcome something that might happen one time because it doesn't happen the next time when you go back. I want to talk a little bit about, um, I think I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about trust in our personal lives. And you brought it up a little bit at the beginning um, with regard to like making professional decisions that affect your personal life and what that means. And one of the things that I'm interested in is, is that when I talk about the issue of trust with young adults, it's often people immediately go to their personal lives, often. Mm -hmm. um, and they before they say anything about trust they talk about betrayal it, it's always the opposite like the language that they talk about is actually betrayal um, and I'm wondering about how we bring trust in, into our personal lives how you might have done it and um, and how we over time how to talk about or really learn to trust in our relationships in a personal space mm. dang it um Betrayal is a very strong word. Yeah. And it's a word that covers all sorts of other... You might think of betray the word betrayal as an umbrella under which there are all sorts of other things that may not be as bad as betrayal. Right. So disappointment um, can feel like betrayal. Or fear. Fear, dishonesty, um, losing out. Pain. Abuse. I mean, there are all sorts of like yeah. really negative and powerful things that, that lead to betrayal as well. So I wonder if part of, in the same way that the word trust can, you know, mm. contains its opposites, um, uh, the language that we have to describe our setbacks and disappointments maybe isn't as rich or as nuanced as it needs to be in order for us to be healthy, to describe what you have experienced to somebody else and have that other person listen is often, um, it's often a really valuable thing and something that people in general lack and young people don't have very good access to um, at all. So anyway, I guess what I'm trying to say is you said that when you talk to young people about trust, they often start by talking about betrayal. That should be taken seriously and should be given enough airtime to understand what that 
actually means. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I have a question for you to lead us to um, just uh, closing down the conversation, which is something that just is, it matters to me. And I, as you know, I deeply love the idea of mentors in our lives. And I'm interested in you telling me about who has been a mentor to you and why, why were they a mentor? What did you learn from them? I'm not sure that I've had very many mentors in my life. I have had, there have been a few people that I've worked with who have really been formative at certain points in my career. But by saying that, I don't mean to like say, woe is me, I haven't had yeah. mentors or like... I think a lot of us yeah, have yeah, that yeah. experience. So um, you and I both worked very closely with Sid Seidelman and at Westminster College. Sid did that for me. Um, I was working at a different institution and I got invited up to interview for a job and I sat down in Sid's office and he just gave me like the best and truest description of that institution at that time. He said, look, this is a place where if you come and you want to make a difference, you can. And for me at that moment in my life, it was the thing that I needed to hear. I was in a big unyielding institution where I didn't feel like I could make a difference no matter how hard I wanted to try. Right. So at that moment in my life, the person that I needed more than anybody else was Sid Seidelman. Mm-hmm. It's kind of nice when they show up when you need them too. It's yes. the whole conspiring to help you. Right, right. Yeah, no, in fact, um, one of the, I'm sure one of the challenges that you face in trying to do mentorship work is that when people reflect on their mentors, it's often serendipitous. It yeah. doesn't often happen through some kind of an intentional, That's exactly I'm going right. to pair you up with, yeah. with this person. Um, at a difficult point in my life, um, I hired somebody who turned out to be a good mentor. I mean, I just like found a job coach who turned out to be really good. Um, and I felt like I was, um, I was really fortunate to have that. And then, in retrospect, there have been people who I now recognize as having been mentors, but I didn't realize that they were mentors at the time. So I think for me, an important part of mentorship is reflection, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, mentorship often happens before you know it. Yeah. Ultimately, we're focusing on um, how we spend our time in a professional sense in a way that invokes purpose and meaning. How do we make sure that all of that, all of those hours that we are spending are spent well rather than just simply spent? So how do you know that that's happening for you in your life? How, what are you doing? What, do you, what gives you the purpose and meaning that you know that this, this time you're spending is well-spent time? Recognizing and also adopting limits helps. So... I, like most people, when you're new in a position, when I was, you know, new as the provost, I was like, I'll show everybody, I'll work all the time, and I'll answer emails all weekend long, and and that was just pathological for me and for the people that I worked with. Mm-hmm. I mean, the last thing that they needed was to be worrying that, you know, a note that they sent on Friday afternoon, I was going to be responding to on Saturday at 6 a.m. I mean, then they have to work on Saturday at 4 yeah, p.m. Yeah, yeah, so... <laughs> Um, so putting limits around work um, that are, uh, of 
course, informed by the work that you have to do. You can't be like a nurse and say, oh, I'm only going to be a nurse between <laughs> like 3 and 7 p.m. or, or whatever. Um, so, so limits, uh, putting limits in place is one thing. Um, the second thing for me is writing. The, the work that most provosts do is best done behind the scenes. It's, um, it's often hard managerial and administrative sort of stuff. But I, as a person, need to be able to think and express ideas. Um, I was a good professor. I, I, I like words. I speak relatively well. And the notion of laying out on the page a series of thoughts that add up to something that has meaning um, has been very important for me. And then the last thing is um, there has to be a vision. Uh, my work is more meaningful when I believe it is attached to a mission or a vision that is greater than the day-to-day, -day, that's greater even than the functional success of the organization that I work for. And if there's not a vision or if I can't apply a vision or you can't see your own work in in yeah, that. Yeah. Then, um, then I don't do good work either for the institution that employs me, or for myself as a person. sincerest thanks to Dr. Gary Danes for taking the time to speak to us with such honesty and clarity. You can learn more about Gary's work by connecting with him on LinkedIn or reading his book entitled Making Villains, Making Heroes, Joseph R. McCarthy, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Politics of American Memory. Next week, I will be joined by Dr. Mike Bills. Mike is the Chief Client Officer at Atlas RTX and he holds a PhD in leadership and change from Antioch University. He is a leading expert in using technology and data science to improve student learning outcomes. We will be discussing failure and growth. Join us next time. As always, thank you for listening to 92,000 Hours. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. We really appreciate your support. If you're interested in integrating the personal and professional through authentic conversation, just like you heard on our episode today, please check out our work at Connection Collaborative. You can find us at connectioncollaborative.com or send me an email at annalisa at connectioncollaborative.com. Thank you and see you next week on 92,000 Hours. Ninety Two Thousand Hours is made possible by Connection Collaborative. This episode was produced and edited by Brianna Stegel. Lexi Banks is our marketing director, and I'm your host, Annalisa Holcomb.